Hello and welcome to the Euroactive Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euroactive's Agri-Food News team. This week, energy prioritization in the food sector, pesticide cuts backlash and the world of biostimulants. So, welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to our listener and to Natasha. Yes, I haven't been here for a few weeks. It was good to be back with the uh, the original duo this week. The original. I still can't believe I'm pod- podcasting with her. You should be honoured. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have the OGs back uh, talking to you this week. And this week, we're going to start talking about the subject that everyone is really talking about at the moment, which is, of course... Oh gosh, shall I say that? Yeah. Ah, energy prioritization. Well, energy, the energy crisis, yes. But specifically, we're talking about energy prioritization this week. And that is because there's been a lot of talk about which sector or which protected customers is the technical term, um, gets the gas supply, gets to be prioritized um, in the event that there's uh, a limited supply of gas. And of course, the question right now um, for us and for a lot of our stakeholders is whether the agri-food sector will be prioritized. Now, we spoke with the commission uh, last week on uh, for an article. Um, you can find that on Euraxiv, um, where the commission explained that basically this is the prerogative of member states. So they get to decide who's prioritized, where the gas supply goes, depending on the needs of uh, individual countries. So based on that, of course, the, the next question is, well, what? how will this play out? What does this mean for the agri-food sector if some countries are prioritizing it and some countries aren't you know what kind of uh, what kind of situation would this create and so we actually spoke um, with a few industry stakeholders this week who were warning that an uncoordinated or haphazard approach to this um, where there's a kind of patchwork of energy prioritization of different sectors amongst different countries could really create a lot of market disruption um, in the agri-food sector um, and so they were saying that, you know, it really risks causing problems for the proper functioning of the food supply chains. And they were urging decision makers um, to not to unintentionally jeopardize food security and the availability uh, in the context of the energy crisis. So they were saying, you know, of course, the agri-food sector is by nature, you know, very energy intensive um, things, you know, it's reliant on processes such as heating, cooling, freezing, all of these things in a, in a continuous cycle. So it leaves it particularly vulnerable to shortages. Um, it means that if there was a situation where they had to cut electricity electricity consumption during certain hours, um, that would have a lot of consequences for the sector. And of course, you know, a lot of the operations in the food chain are dependent, you know, in highly interdependent between borders, you know, different sectors, all kind of interrelated between raw materials, feed, packaging, processing. Um, So, you know, they were saying that the entire chain uh, needs to be prioritized. Yeah, and it's also an interesting topic because uh, now that uh, we're going to discuss these energy shortages and uh, and also the increasing prices, several sectors will... uh, asked to be prioritized. Mm. There was also um, last week the the warning from uh, the manufac- the generic drug manufacturers, uh, Medicine for Europe. So uh, they're basically saying that uh, they can't afford to produce cheap drugs like uh, generics 
because of the surge in energy mm. prices. So again, it's going to be a bit like uh, in the COVID pandemic when we were discussing which which uh, sector should be, again, prioritizing in the case of crisis. Everyone wants a slice Indeed. of the pie, basically. Mm. So it's also a, a good test for the uh, resilience tools that the commission and the member states, because in the end, it's it's it, in the end it's a competence of the member states but uh, as uh, the experts that we contacted uh, uh, told us it's also a matter of coordination and this is basically where the uh, commission could weigh in so but we move from Marrakesh to another your favorite word yeah <laughs> it, it 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 all started with the an agri podcast one of the first that we recorded and uh, to be fair i didn't know the the, the meaning of the word rakus <laughs> and then i started saying that um, every day compulsively yeah <laughs> um so uh, the other rakus is the um current discussion around the industrial emission directive and tashes is wondering why my eyes are lighting up what yeah. is this Tell me why about. agriculture <laughs> should be uh, bothered about the industrial emission directive because uh, this is the revision of a um, 10 year old uh, directive uh, dealing with the again emission in several industrial uh, sectors and uh, to be fair the current uh, directive already cover a small number of uh, livestock farms. Uh, it's about 4% of the European uh, Union uh, pigs and poultry farms. But they, the Commission presented a new proposal in April uh, trying to uh, broaden the scope and, uh, and also the, the number of, uh, of uh, livestock farms uh, uh, covered by, by this industrial emission directive. Uh, why we're talking about this? Because last week, uh, uh, both in the, in the Agri-Fish Council, so the meeting with ministers, and in the uh, Agriculture uh, Committee of the European Parliament, there was a um, uh, debate with, with lawmakers. So the Commission presented their uh, main ideas um, included in the proposal. Uh, it's quite rare, but uh, the, the ministers and the MEPs Agree. Oh, on the same page. <laughs> are on the same page. But it's, it's a, yeah. It's, it's kind of a first. Yeah, kind of remarkable. Yeah. Um, just to just to give a, a tiny clarification, the uh, the actual the the lawmakers were supposed to um, deliver or or to amend the commission's proposal are the environment ministers and the environment MEPs, so the MEPs in the MV committee. But after very long negotiations in uh, the within the European Parliament, the Agriculture Committee managed to get the um, the competence. Not only it's not going to be an opinion, but the competence on the parts. There are um, the main provision related basically to the rearing of uh, animals. Uh, so just to put into context, the commission is proposing to cover no longer 4%, but 13% of the largest cattle, pigs and poultry farms uh, in the European Union. Uh, according to the commission, this is uh, about 60% uh, of ammonia and 43% of uh, methane emissions. Uh, and in also uh, also the new um, this is quite interesting because the new proposal um, will start to have 
effects uh, starting from 2029. So the commission, in the, particularly in the presentation with the before the MEPs, they basically said that we need to prepare the post uh, uh, 2027 cap. Oh God! <laughs> so it's the first time that that I heard that we we have to put something in the new cap, and the current one is not not even in force at the moment. I know. Well, that's actually not the first time I actually was speaking with um at the informal meeting of ministers ah, in Prague. Yeah. There was also the, the reason why you weren't here in the past. Exactly. Uh, Just to yeah, drop in that why, okay. why I wasn't here. There was already discussions about, oh, we have to do that in the new cap or we have to put this on the table for the new cap. And I was thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> just I don't know why you have just recovered from the last cap reform. But it's true that, you know, in, well, in not a crazy amount of time, there will have to be discussions about the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, not just yet. Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah, 2024, yeah. I think. was what But there are several interesting aspects. I mean, we're a bit um, out of the topic, but there are several interesting aspects, even if you think about the uh, third pillar, the social uh, mm. rights pillar. Super interesting because, I mean, it, it starts to be applied from uh, 2025, but uh, actually the, the fruits uh, are probably going to be... Where are you going with this? No, <laughs> no. But I mean, you're gonna you're gonna see the the best results uh, after 2027. So you mm. need to think about um, the next process because I mean, it's it's five years. Eh? Five years is nothing, Tash. Where, where you were five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> well, all that fun to come, but let's not go too much into that topic <laughs> right now. Um, because we also have other things to discuss um, this week. Uh, so namely what I'm thinking of here is that there was also a very interesting discussion at the uh, meeting of agriculture ministers this week on uh, the commission's plans to slash pesticide use. So here I'm talking about um, the sustainable use of pesticides regulation, which was unveiled back in June after it had a whole series of different setbacks. And member states are not very happy with these plans, I think it's safe to say. And they were calling for, and we're hearing it again, and this is not the first time we've heard this, but they're calling for a new impact assessment. Impact assessment. Impact the, assessment. There's some. Uh... It, it's also quite interesting to um, recall that uh, why we're having the discussion. Okay, the sustainable use of pesticide regulation uh, is about to be discussed at the trilogue level. Mm. Um, not not really because they they haven't found a compromise text. Um, it's moving that way. It's moving that way, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes time. Eh? Mm. But the point is that something happened in, in in the summer, like when the commission liked to put forward the most controversial, saying, the most controversial <laughs> stuff. So um, the member state... So, so if you remember the, sustain, the sustainability, the sustainable use of uh, pesticide regulation is basically about... Um, establishing some targets mm -hmm. that the member states are supposed to propose yes. and some uh, reduction uh, plans. Mm. It's, it's, together, it's, all about, it's all about impact assessment and plans, like strategic plan. But these are the yeah. only words we ever say, I feel like. And so these targets are supposed to add up yeah. overall to the yeah. overall EU ambition to slash the yeah. use and risk. So the, the only the only binding uh, target is the overall ambition. Which is 50%. To 50%. Of 10 course, 10. in order to reach that ambition, you have to apply a formula that is included in one of the annex. I remember mm. the 47th annex of the 
proposal. Uh, it's public. It's public. It's public. Yeah. And um, so the commission did an exercise. It was requested by the member states. Huh? But the commission did this exercise. It's called exercise. So basically send the member states, the capitals, the alleged targets that they should put in their uh, reduction plan uh, in order to reach the overall ambition. Mm-hmm. And it turns out uh, that uh, the situation is, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I remember 62% for Italy or yeah. 55% for France and so there's there's and so a couple there's a few that are over sixty percent and there's at least ten that are yeah 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 and then of course they were shocked mm. uh, some of them are are wondering <laughs> if they send the right numbers to the commission but again it's it's just uh, you know applying the formula that is included in the annex so again mm. it was an exercise but still uh, was quite um, it was quite shocking for for some member states and now they're basically asking the commission to. Uh, do another impact assessment in order to fix the potential um, critical situation that could... But again... But not only, I mean, a large part of their argument is that there was a kind of impact assessment from the commission, but that this was carried out before the Ukraine war. Needs to so be updated. The, yeah. the, the, the argument from ministers, and actually we also had this from MEPs in the Agri Committee but to very fair, recently, to... the, the argument is that uh, the situation has changed. So how can we have an impact assessment? Is, is there is there a line? To be fair, the, the proposal uh, changed already because of the Ukraine war. Because, you, you, I mean, we had the leak uh, in February and then they decided to stop it. And then in the end, mm-hmm. they, they presented the proposal in uh, late, not late June, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, and I remember that the first leak was completely different. Like, uh, and also the commission... Uh, um, told us that uh, they took into consideration the member state complaints even before the before the presentation of the proposal. So, yeah, mm, uh, quite a twisty, twisty story. Yeah, this I, it's mostly because they're shocked about the the, the exercise. The exercise. Mm. But what was interesting was that the uh, the commission was was present at this meeting actually it was um food safety commissioner Stella Kiriakides and she was she was pretty firm on this she was basically like we're not budging on this you know this is not uh, this is not happening she was calling on member states to to maintain the ambition um she was saying that you know she thinks it's entirely fair and that she's not she's not looking to change anything so going to be a bit of a standoff it's true it's true that uh, it's going to be a bit of a standoff but the the lawmakers are the are in the council and in the european parliament eh? so it's true that the commission uh, defends their argument uh, but in the end it's the minister that actually like i mean they they're supposed to decide and to take uh, uh, the final decision together with the other side of the lawmaking process, which is uh, the European Parliament. So, so yeah, no, I mean, sorry to be continued. Yeah, indeed. TBC. And for this week, focus, I'll bring you to my home country, Italy. Uh, 
Uh, where a few weeks ago, I attended a field visit to the production site of a leading company in the production and marketing of biologicals. Uh, the company is called Valagro and it's headquartered in Atessa in the beautiful Abruzzo region and has been acquired recently in 2020 by the multinational Syngenta Group. Uh, I spoke to some people there to understand a bit more of this new world of biologicals. I'm Giuseppe Natale, CEO, co-founder of Valagro. At Valagro, we produce a specialty fertilizer, plant-based stimulant. In few sentences, we help growers to produce more, better quality food using less resources. So biologicals are basically products that provide growers uh, with a more sustainable way for growing their crops. And they can actually be a great help in the reduction of pesticide use, for instance. But at the same time, they can contribute to reducing nutrient losses while ensuring no deterioration of soil fertility. And they are also allowed in organic farming. As you know, all the things that I listed uh, are important components of the EU sustainable food policy framework, the very ambitious uh, farm to fork strategy. And one thing that I noticed is that there must be high ambition at the basis of the decision to do research in this field, but also some kind of great awareness of the future challenges of the food production sector. For instance, I asked Giuseppe uh, what is, according to him, the most pressing issue for the sector. What we consider really important today is to have a more attention, more focus on the soil health. Um, today, we lose 100 billion per year because of the soil degradation. Uh, soil, it's a part of the life in the planet. In a spoon of soil, there is one billion of microorganisms. So it's living material and it's really, truly important that we manage the soil um, in an accountable manner respecting the soil, but also understanding from a scientific point of view uh, what are the interactions between soil and productivity. Okay, but what are these biologicals? Uh, well, there are basically two types of biologicals, uh, biostimulants and biocontrol products. Uh, biostimulants are focused on enhancing the plant's natural ability to overcome abiotic stresses, uh, whether that be heat stress or salinity, for instance. Uh, in a sense, biostimulants are focused on making the plants healthier and, and are applied to plants to stimulate natural processes, uh, while biocontrol is more focused on biotic stress, like pests, for instance, uh, in order to allow the crop to find uh, its full potential. And the two combined together uh, could you know, result in an overall integrated pest management program on a specific farm. You might remember that this concept of integrated pest management, IPM, uh, is actually mandatory. So the IPM principles uh, are an important part of the strategy to decrease farmers' dependence on pesticides, actually since the first uh, sustainable use of uh, pesticide directive, which now is, uh, we talked before about the, its revision. But So basically, IPM is this 
ecosystem-based strategy that focuses on the long-term prevention of pests uh, through a combination of techniques applied in an order of hierarchy uh, so that uh, it can minimize the use of chemical plant protection products to the greatest extent possible. And you also remember that uh, uh, IPM principle, uh, even though they are a mandatory part of the sustainable use of pesticide framework in the EU, uh, they've been slow, uh, and and actually the support. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's spread. Uh, have been slow, and the support is uh, lacking, and is just uh, coming from uh, a warning from the EU Court of Auditors in uh, 2020. Anyway, there's also a difference in the use of biostimulants and biocontrol, and I talk about that with uh, Corey Hack, uh, who's the head of biological division for Syngenta. Biostimulants are more broadly used uh, than biocontrols. Bio There's a few elements for that. One is the science that's really become, becoming uncovered under biostimulants is finding the market faster. Um, it's a component of two things. One of the science is, uh, is advancing at a faster rate, and it's advancing because there's a lot more capital, whether it be venture capital, outside investments, um, than biocontrols. Uh, biocontrols are still being funded and still being invested in, but the regulatory process is significantly longer. Uh, to get a biocontrol um, registered and for sale. So that's the fundamental difference between biostimulants and biocontrols uh, in terms of regulatory and then the amount of investment they're getting is time to market. And biologicals uh, is a growing market because, uh, for instance, uh, consumers are asking uh, for no residues in their food, uh, pesticide residues, of course, and uh, or, for instance, farmers uh, through these products can improve crop resilience due to climate change. Uh, but let's hear again from uh, Corey uh, how the market uh, for biologicals is being shaped. The global biologicals market today is $4 billion, and that's about split evenly between biostimulants and biocontrols. It's going to grow at uh, annual camp compound rate about 10% over the next uh, 10 years. So by 2030, it'll be a $10 million market. We do see the biostimulants outgrowing the biocontrols over that time. And of course, the visit to this uh, production uh, facility uh, of these biostimulants uh, was particularly interesting as I basically had the chance to have a sneak peek at all the processes uh, from how they select the raw materials in the chemistry unit to how they test it on plants in the plant science unit and, and how plants respond after the application or in different clim climatic conditions such as drought uh, or uh, biotic stress in general. And after a very long process, they can start making, uh, you know, the, the, the scientists, they can start making specific uh, claims on the specific efficacy of the extracts. Uh, of course, in an attempt to translate this knowledge about dead raw materials to farmers, which are ultimately the end user. And uh, but another interesting aspect is that the raw material at the basis of the process can be everything. Uh, like, for instance, I was looking at the process uh, uh, with uh, uh, seaweed extracts. But the, the researchers are trying to valorize as much as possible something that can be considered as waste from the uh, production process, no? Uh, in order to maintain this concept of uh, circular economy. Uh, and also, the level of technology is quite the thing <laughs> there. I was particularly impressed by the genomic elaboration, uh, basically the genomic fingerprint that researcher can have from the genetic inform information, which make 
possible to understand all the mechanism inside the plant and literally to switch on or switch off one particular characteristic like uh, photosynthetic efficiency or tolerance or even water scarcity. And it's honestly a level of technology we normally don't associate to uh, agriculture products. Hello, my name is Jaroslava Buchta, and today in our Flavor of the Week part, I will continue the Biostimulators theme by Gerardo with a very interesting and very useful plant, nettle. Nettle can be often found growing in wild nature, like in parks, forests and gardens. Majority of its species have leaves covered by tiny hair-like barbs. If you touch them, they often cause rashes, bumps, hives and itchiness. But don't be discouraged by that as a plant may have a lot of different applications and its itchy protection can be easily overcome. Since here we're talking about the flavor of the week, I'll start from the fact that nettle is used in cooking in different countries for pastry, first and second dishes, and even as tea. Soak for a couple of minutes in hot water, it won't cause any more harm and can be used the same as, for example, spinach. Tastes very similar as well in cakes, pasta, soups, even pizza and pesto. In Ukraine, by the way, it's often a part of the so-called green borscht or sorrel soup, in other words. The herb itself has antibacterial, antifungal and anti-inflammatory properties, is rich in vitamins A, B, C and K, along with containing carotene and iron. It can be also used for making your immune system stronger, so you may want to check out nettle tea during these cold days. Finally, coming back to biostimulators, nettles soaked for a couple of days in water can be used as a good fertilizer, as checked and confirmed by my mom. But, as a disclaimer from my mom, you wouldn't be very happy to use it in the office, for example, due to its absolutely natural smell of manure. I quote. And, as a bonus, this herb grows in quite a lot of places, so it can be absolutely free. Just be sure to collect it in clean places and use gloves against itchy stings. And that's all from us this week. Uh, this week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by your active AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foot, with the technical support of Evi Chiori. You can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foot. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.